What's up guys, Jack here. Really excited to bring you this podcast episode. Author, journalist, Brian Mueller. Brian spent a year with the Glade Central Raiders, one of the top high school football programs in the country in Bell Glades, Florida. And in this episode, we talk a little bit about the football program. We talk a lot about the poverty, the resilience, and the amazing stories that made up the players, the students at the school, the head coach, and his kind of whole experience of his time in Bell Glades, Florida. And it was just absolutely amazing, absolutely inspiring. Really excited to bring it to you, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here we go. In Bell Glade, where the risk of joblessness, prison, or early death followed each boy like a toxic cloud, high school football was more than religion. It was like salvation itself, the raft by which to flee a ship that kept drifting back in time. Football offered an education, a chance at life. As for the town, the relationship with the game went beyond fandom. It was something deeper, more psychological, like a weekly remembrance of lost, unblemished youth. Glade Central had to be one of the only high schools in America where its students were largely absent from football games. Watching from the bleachers were the uncles, fathers, and old gridiron kings whose own escape had eluded them. For a town with trouble on its mind, the Friday night lights were the closest thing to a catharsis, or at least a fleeting escape. End quote. And that is a quote from the book Muck City by Brian Mueller. And I'm really fortunate today to have Brian on the podcast. Brian, how are you, sir? Doing well. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on. And this book was written a few years back. If you could put a little bit of context and a little bit of story behind how you arrived in the Muck City area and how this came about. Yeah, um, it was really a matter of coincidence. Um, Muck City was based uh, out of Belle Glade, Florida. Uh, which is, um, you know, about a 30-minute drive uh, west of, of uh, Palm Beach and West Palm Beach. And so if you uh, go to uh, President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club, you just have to turn your wheels once. And um, after driving through the, the cane fields for a good stretch, um, you start to feel kind of isolated and kind of lonely. And uh, you reach Belgrade and Pahokee and uh, which to me were two of the poorest towns I'd ever seen in the United States. Um, and it was a far, far cry from what you just saw in, in Palm Beach. Um, and I, and when I went out there the first time, I really uh, saw this as sort of a glaring example of the economic disparity in, in our country. Um, and But the way I came in it was was almost kind of by accident. I was actually... Um, I'm, I'm a former war reporter. Uh, I worked in the Congo and I wrote a book about the war in Congo. And I was giving a, a, a talk, a lecture to some high school kids in Fort Lauderdale and uh, about Congo and my experiences and the teacher in the school had flown me down there. And, uh, and as I was finishing, the teacher says, well, if you, if you want a, another underrepresented place or underreported place, you ought to just go to this place called Belgrade. And I said, that's really interesting. I've, I've heard of that. Um, a friend of mine worked at ESPN a couple years before and had told me about this place where um, the kids uh, chase rabbits in the, in the cane fields. When, and I'm like, well, that's kind of a crazy story. Um, and I didn't think much about it. And uh, I happened to be uh, there in Fort Lauderdale and my wife's sister and her husband lived there. And so actually my brother-in-law picked me up from that interview. and. Um, I said, hey, you know, there, this woman was talking about Belglade down the road from here. And um, he said, oh, Belglade. What well, turns out my brother-in-law was a former football recruiter for Florida State. Hmm. He worked for the uh, the academic department at Florida State. He was uh, he tutored those guys. And um, they would they would recruit heavily in the 80s on, uh, there in, in Belglade. And he goes, let's let's take a drive to see Belglade. He's like, it'll it'll really open your eyes. And so we we drove out there and and. Uh, those hit those uh, cane, those cane fields and um, got into the middle of town and uh, just the upfront poverty that I saw uh, in that town was just was just shocking. 
You know, it reminded me something of, of uh, places in Africa that I'd been just, um, uh, you know, you have, you have uh, areas of town where people are, are collecting rainwater for, to drink, you know, it's poverty on that scale. And, uh, and all the trauma uh, that comes with, with that kind of poverty. And so I thought, <clears throat> man, I really want to write about this place as a city. I started digging into it, um, realized that, you know, in the 80s that Belgrade had one of the highest AIDS rates in the Western Hemisphere. Um, and it was um, just stigmatized for, for decades. And um, so I was like, how do I write about this place? I realized that the, the football team was so instrumental there and was so huge. And so um, decided to, to do it through football. And I showed up in Belgrade, I think a few weeks later, and I showed up to football practice and I met with Jesse Hester, uh, who's the coach who had come back uh, to Belgrade uh, after uh, some time away. He had, you know, he had been in the NFL and become a star and then had come back to his alma mater to kind of guide these kids. And uh, I said, I want to I follow your team for a year. And he's like, yeah, whatever. And... Um, <laughs> I think he was surprised when I kept coming back day after day. So, and it just kind of went from there. And then what struck you about the, the poverty? What's, what stood out? You know, it, it was just, like I said, that upfront poverty where it, there was just no electricity. There's no, you know, you go to the school and they're talking about kids who their parents have, it is, it's a migrant community. A lot of people who um, kind of work the, uh, uh, work the vegetable fields um, throughout the country. And so they're, they're a kind of a, a roving community of people. And sometimes parents will just leave the kids there um, to live on their own. You know, they, they, people, you know, are kids who, um, whose parents have died um, from all kinds of chronic disease. Like chronic disease in that community is so high. Heart disease, diabetes, um, AIDS. Uh, when I was working there, um, I would say that almost every kid on that team had lost somebody to uh, an immediate family member, either to violence, prison, or AIDS. And, <clears throat> and when you look at how trauma really plays into um, a young child's life, you know, if you have compounding traumas, events like, you know, divorce or alcoholism or um, sudden death in the family, someone incarcerated in your family, that, that is a, what we call an adverse childhood experience, an ACE. And the more those build up in, in a body, um, the more long-term damage they do. We're, we're, we have all this new uh, data proves that now. And it can lead to chronic disease, it can lead to mental illness, it can lead to ADHD. Um, and and Belgrade was just a minefield of trauma. Um, the gang violence there was, was horrible. Um, kids, you know, um, losing their friends to, to shootings, losing their family members to shootings. Um, incarceration uh, was was really uh, high, um, and and just and just getting you know and just like parents struggling, you know, a lot of parents had two or three jobs, some parents didn't work at all, were disabled. Um, I mean, so just poverty and, it's, and you know, poverty is such a complex thing, um, and it, it, there was just poverty in, in its many many forms there, and these kids are, are basically. That, see that football team as a way to to get out of it, you know, and God bless them. And a lot of them, they did it. And but as I write in the book, it's like if you're not a football player, then you know your chances are, are much lower. You said it was it's it's called adverse childhood. Yeah, <clears throat> adverse childhood experiences, um, and they call them aces, like okay, using the acronym. And and Belgrade is a is a is a just is full of them, you know, you know, somewhere like, um, you know, one of the, one of the leading, uh, researchers, doctors on ACEs is right there in San Francisco. Um, Nadine Burke Harris. And she, uh, uh, she had a, the Bayview clinic and she's the one that really came up. She's the one that has, has really put ACEs, um, into the public, uh, sphere lately. Um, but, but it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's the nineties, you know, that they're, but we, we only know, know now like they're, um, the impact on, on chronic health and mental health uh, in, the, in the last few years. And so when I was, when I was reporting in Belgrade, I was so aware of trauma and, and, and works. Um, but I, I wasn't aware until recently just how, um, 
how, how it leads to all these these health problems and stuff. And so now I'm looking back at my at my reporting in Belgrade and and seeing how all these kids' parents were sick and their grandmas were dying so early. And you know, you know, Kelvin Benjamin, man, um, his mother Christine, um, she was she uh, had a really tough life, and I really liked her. I'd go hang out with her in her apartment, talk to her about Kelvin, and um, and she just struggled. I mean, she was struggling every day. I think she had some substance abuse problems, was trying to get better, um, and had been in some really bad relationships, uh, and had grown up really hard and she just died. I mean, she died, um, a couple years ago. Um, mm. I mean, she was in her forties, you know, um, of, I think it, it was just, I, I can't remember how she died, but but there's, you, you just had these stories, like in every family, they're like, you know, these kids' families dying so early. Um, and uh, I have a whole chapter in the book about the trauma. Um, I wish I could go back and, and, and rewrite it, you know, because knowing what I know now. But, you know, just kids who, um, you know, I mean, just when I was there, we had to evacuate the, the field a couple of times because mm. of gunfire. And gang activity, there was some gang fighting and stuff uh, in, the, in the in some uh, a housing complex just near the gates, and, and so this is an everyday thing for these kids. Uh, and uh, one one of the kids I really profile in the book is this guy uh, Dominique Gibson, who we call uh, Booby, and his whole body was just kind of a testament to the the, the trauma in his life. Uh, his tattoos, he had all these tattoos, and one for his mother who had died, and his brother who had been shot and his friends who had been killed. And, and this guy, this guy was like 16 years old. Mm. And I want to, I want to say he's, he's now a uh, college graduate and is like working in, you know, he has like a corporate job at Marriott, you know? So I'm really proud of this kid um, for getting out. And, and uh, so, but yeah, that this, the story was, was, was so rich to me, you know, and I got there uh, in Belgrade and, and, you know, I, I'm so thankful to those coaches, Jesse Hester and, and Sherm and, and um, Coach Q, and that they just, they kind of embraced me and uh, let me, just let me interview these kids all the day, all time. And, you know, I was very respectful. I would go to the kids' parents and say, look, you know, they're minors, you know, I'd say, do you mind if I interview your son? And, and so, you know, the day my reporting, you know, I lived in a little motel. Main Street in, in Belgrade. I, I was living in New York City at the time. I had, you know, a wife and a, a newborn baby, and uh, I was doing this book. And I would, I would, uh, I was living in this motel. I would, I would drive back to New York City every two weeks and come back on the weekends. And um, but, you know, a, a typical day would be, you know, I would, I would go interview these these kids' families at their home, their their jobs and stuff. Uh, interview their parents, their grandparents about their lives go to football practice and hang out with the coaches and then kind of repeat that I, during the day, but kind of report on the town and the families. And then in the afternoon, uh, I would, we do the, I would do the football portion and the X's and O's of the, of, of the story. Um, but, um, the, the story was, was definitely not about football. It was about poverty and how these kids made it and, and made it out through football. Um, football, as I've said, is, is a, was a doorway in and a doorway out uh, of that story. And it was just a, a beautiful way to tell that, to tell the story of that place. And then when you were there, Coach Hester was the coach. And the you kind of, you give this great history of the area and of the high school football programs within the area. And they were all, you know, as it progressed, they were good. But the big trigger that seemed to happen where an unbelievable amount of uh, division one football players and NFL players started coming from that area was after Hester was drafted in the first round in, in 1985 of the NFL draft. And do you see like that as a direct correlation where guys in that area were like, okay, if he can do it, I can do it too. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, Lewis Oliver. I mean, a lot of those guys. Uh, so that, so yeah, uh, Hester was um, one of the first, and you, you have to you have to look back to. Um, so you know, football has always been very important there, and in like a lot of places in this country, in these little small towns. Um, but you know, it was it was racially segregated, 
up until um, the early 70s, late, you know, I think Pahokee was in late 60s to integrate and, and, and uh, Belgrade was a little bit later. And so um, one of the, my favorite stories of that was when, when they integrated in Belgrade, you had the black team and the white team finally coming together. And it was one of those situations like where the white team and the black team sort of walked on the practice field for the first time and kind of eyeballed each other. And we're like, both sides are going like, what's going to happen here, you know? And, um, and um, there were, there were some, there were some, it wasn't, I'll say it wasn't easy uh, to integrate with these guys. And, but once they kind of saw that they were, you know, there's no difference between them. Um, they really dominated that area and, and they have ever since. Um, and so I think what you had was, so you had a lot of the, the black players now being in the system and in, in like, the, the the bigger system now, and uh, it was it was only inevitable that that um, they would you know get in college scholarships and et cetera like that um, after integration. And so it was um, really that first crop of guys that that um, that came up under that system. And then yeah, and then the floodgates just opened because I think what happened was um, not so much that the kids said I'm going to be that, but they did. But I think recruiters. Saw, knew now to go look down there and mm. really kind of mine the talent and um, and and also and, and I think they just played hand in hand because you know the the families down there realized like oh this is a really a really great way for our kids to go to college and, and to kind of get us out of this situation and so they work together you know it's like well let's let's make our football program better and uh, you know and it just kind of cycle right so it's it's still that way. I mean, there there's still tons of kids. I mean, I I can't remember the this season. I mean, I know last season there were four guys from the from my team that team in the NFL last year. Um, I think there's fewer now, but yeah, I mean, from the so, team that from the book. Uh, yeah, there's yeah. Um, well, Benjamin. Okay, yeah, put, yeah you're, that's amazing. Still, yeah. yeah. Because when I was so, when I was researching for the shows, it was looking like more and more every year. I'm that talent still there, but it's it's dispersing to other schools outside of of Glade Central. That, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it kind of it reached its pinnacle, right? Like um, in the uh, I can't remember which Super Bowl it was, but it was um, the the Cardinals versus the Steelers, and it on one side was. Antonio Holmes for the Steelers and the other side was Anquan Bolden and uh, you know San Antonio Holmes ends up making the, the the winning touchdown catch you know for the Super Bowl that was like the glades like you know you know they were marching on that um, and then you know Kelvin Benjamin the the star of my my story ends up making the winning touchdown catch to put Florida State as national champions and uh, he's now playing for the Buffalo Bills um, but but you know what, what's what's now happening in Belgrade. To your point just now, um, you're you're seeing. I, I think it's just going to go down those numbers because um, more and more families are uh, moving out of the glades just to to have better work because the glades there are no jobs in the glades. You work for uh, the sugar industry, and the sugar industry is 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 a mechanized industry now, more and more, and so there's a fewer jobs there. And you know that whole town, that whole area um, rose up from the sugar industry, you know, because that was all, that was all the Everglades, you know, back in the day, that's what, there was a big swamp and then they, they drained that swamp and uh, use all that fertile, the muck, they call it. They use all that muck to grow um, everything from corn to sugarcane and sugarcane grew really well. And it became, it became our, one of our main sources of, of sugarcane. That's not anymore. Uh, we import stuff now, but uh, the sugar industry grew very powerful in that area, and um, and so the towns of Pahokee, Belgrade, and Oak, they they were sugar towns. They were company towns, and the, each year they would bring in all these Jamaicans from Jamaica on a on a work program to work the sugar canes, and 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 then also people from those areas they they worked the sugar cane, and a lot of those people from Jamaica they stayed there and they lived. And it was this big bustling economy, you know, especially when the Jamaicans came because all this, they would spend all their money in these towns. And um, it was really fascinating, you know, that whole era of time. And then um, once mechanization uh, happened, 
and um, and there was like some lawsuits from these Jamaicans, you know, uh, uh, labor disputes, and uh, you know they weren't they were like abusing these guys in the in the in the cane fields. Uh, the sugar companies stopped using the the the, the foreign workers and went all into um, mechanization, and so the economy just collapsed in these areas uh, after that. And so, I mean, from those from that from those days on, really the economy has just been nothing there. And so, most people have been um, kind of driving out of town, driving to West Palm Beach, driving to Miami to work. And so, when I was there, it was right after the a uh, uh, couple of years after the recession. And so, the economy was still really struggling. And um, but I think now as the economy has picked up a little bit more, um, you know, people they have more opportunities. And if you're in Belgrade and you know you you trying to raise your kids as a single parent, and there's gunshots out, outside your window all the time, and you're and you're worried about your kids being recruited into a gang and killed, and I mean the first chance you get to move to Miami or to West Palm Beach or to any of these little uh, little suburban towns, you know, into a better school district, um, into a school district, you're gonna do it. And so so what it is all the talent um, from Belgrade is moving you know, into the bigger cities, I think. And, uh, and so we kind of saw the end of an era. I think we're seeing the end of an era. And it sounds like Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, no, no, but who knows? I mean, it's, uh, hopefully the the better economy will, will bless it as well. And, um, but there's just, there's just, you know, you drive out there, it's just so isolated, just so isolated. And so, um, most, most parents are going to want to, you know, send their kids to a better school. And then the, the Belgrade, the school itself has really struggled over the years. Um, they, they're so, they're chronically underfunded. That area of, of the county, it's Palm Beach County, right? And, and so much of the money that goes into Palm Beach County, the tax dollars is from, from that area. And hmm. They generate so much money um, and yet receive so little of the support. And that's something that I touch on in the book as well. But so, you know, I've got three kids, you know, I'm going to raise, you know, am I going to raise my kids in Belgrade and with these limited resources, or am I going to move to West Palm where, where I got family and, you know, it's, there's like a grocery store closer to me. You know, it's just, you're going to do that. And then I got a couple questions to ask based on what we're talking about with the aces and such. If, if yeah. you could talk a little bit about the, the quarterback Mario and kind of his story a little bit, and then I want to ask a couple questions about him on that topic. God, I love that guy. I love that kid. Um, he, you know, he was a he was a linebacker in his junior year, and at the end of the year, uh, Coach Hester, you know, they 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 nearly made the the, the finals, and they didn't. And um, at the end of the year, Coach Hester came to him and said, "You're going to be our quarterback next year." And it was a really controversial move because. Mario was this very atypical quarterback. He was kind of, he was like a chubby kid. He was short, kind of chubby, uh, wasn't very fast. Um, but, uh, you know, nothing like you, you would see, you would think of a quarterback. Um, didn't have a very strong arm, but Hester really saw just the fire in him. Uh, and he was uh, one of the best leaders on the team. And, you know, they were graduating their seniors and, and, you know, there was a hole for, for, for that leadership. And, and Hester felt in his guts that, that Mario could, could fill that role. And so he made him quarterback and, uh, he came in the season as the QB and, uh, it was really tough on him and, uh, he got hit a lot. He, um, he couldn't see over the line. Um, you know, all the parents and the, you know, there was this, there's this big, uh, uh, it's, it's like the chorus that it's like a Shakespeare play. It's all, there's, there's the chorus, you know, in the, in the background in, in the chorus in this scene was the, uh, all the, the dads and the uncles and the grandpas, uh, of the players who had you played before and they played in for Belgrade and everything. And, you know, they, they've all got their opinions, their armchair, uh, quarterback opinions. And, and so it really got to him, right. Cause they were saying, ah, he's no quarterback. He's, you know, he's short, he's fat. He's, you know, and, um, so I really started kind of paying attention to Mario and, and I and learned that, you know, uh, this kid's life was so hard. You know, his, his dad died when he was a kid. Um, and then his mom died for that. Um, 
and he was raised by his sister and his sister made sure that that she she ran that house she and he had three other brothers and sisters and it was so hard you know for these guys um and and i'm and i'm just thinking now back about the trauma and it's like his mother died of like heart disease man and god she was like 40 something years old Mm. Um, his dad died at really early too. Like, I think he was 50 years old or something. Yeah, you um, mentioned that it sounds like his dad, the grief from his mom is what probably caused. Yeah. 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 His, his dad was, there was a story that his dad was shaving, you know, and then they came in there and he was on the ground and he had just suffered this massive heart attack. And, and you know, and you have to look at, at, at their lives, you know, and their lives had been probably harder than Mario's life. Um, and so anyway, this guy had overcome so much, like so many of those kids and was there on this field. And, you know, and it's like, how do you channel that? You know, how do you, as a 17 year old kid, like, how do you, how do you take, I mean, and, and, and he would just cry all the time. He was just so broken inside, you know, I would interview him about his parents and, and he would just, he would just sit there and he, he, he it was like something was just like burning inside him, you know, some just grief. It's like, and I would just, I would just feel for this kid. It's like, how do you, like, how do you channel that? You know, we always, it, there's, it's a big cliche in sports, like, you know, channeling, you know, your adversity and, but it's a lot harder than that. You know, it, to see it, uh, in real life, it's, you know, it, it, it does take extraordinary character and, and it's not pretty. It's, it's, it's often messy and, um, and it's just confusing, I think for the kids, um, because he knew what he had to do, like on the field, it's like he wanted to play for his mom because his dad, because his dad never saw him go to a championship and all this kind of stuff. And like I understand that, and you know, I'm like, yeah, I see that. But like watching him sort of, kind of really, really channeling that grief, you know, when so other, so many other kids his age, uh, you know, channel it through more destructive ways. It just made him into a really great character to me, and I, I really admired him, and and. And he was a leader. He became a huge leader for the team, would rally these guys. They went to the state championship. I mean, he was just like, he gave everything, 110%. And like, I mean, every cliche, leave it on the field, blah, 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 all that stuff. That's him, you know, at the end. And uh, I don't know, I don't want to give the book away, but that guy was like one of the most inspiring characters I've, I've ever profiled as a journalist. What do you feel are the factors that determine whether or not someone has the, that determines whether someone that goes through all this adversity channels that in the drive? I don't know, man. I think it's like, like I said, like, how do you, you know, it's like, it, it's a maturity maybe, but there's, there's, it's got to have to do with maturity. It's got to, because I think a lot of these kids deal with that trauma, but you know, they, they probably deal with it. Like, like most of us, right. They'll, they'll just drink or, or, or smoke weed. And, um, I think that's probably the, that's probably the most typical way. Right. You know? And, and I, I, I do think that in like Kelvin Benjamin's case and in Mario's case and the guys that really made it out. And even in the research that we know about, um, ACEs and trauma, if, if you have like an anchoring, if you have like another parent that's solid or another family figure that has, what they call like the scaffolding that you can kind of hold on to um, through these turbulent times and kind of wade through the, the, the swift current, you know, you can make it out into resilience. And so I look back at Mario and Mario had his sister and his sister was strong and his sister, um, his sister, man, she was like, she was like almost falling apart. Her, her, her husband had gone to prison, you know, her parents were dead. You know, she was alone raising her siblings, but she was, she was tough and she like, you know, had a steady job. She had, she kept the house in order. Like she was, a, she was a, gr a good uh, example to him. Um, I, I look at Kelvin Benjamin, um, his, you know, his sister married a guy named Frank, who was actually uh, that guy, Booby's dad. Frank was a solid guy. Like Frank, you know, uh, steady job like working guy, you know, had kept the house, you know, he was a, a good authority figure in the house, you know, just solid. It's like, if you have that bedrock to stand on, um, you know, you can have that trauma in your life, but if you have that one 
that one piece of ground to stand on. I, I think it, it, it really um, can carry you far. Uh, and, and, and I think if you look back at the kids who didn't make it, you know, a lot, a lot of times there's not that, that role in their life. And do you feel that the football program is a part of that scaffolding? Oh yeah, man. But I think it's really hard for guys like Jesse um, because they're not their parents, right? So there's like that, there's that a line that they have to to draw, right? Like I'm not your dad, you know. I I can I can parent you. I mean, and, you know, these guys are like paying the light bills and the water bills for these kids' families out of their own pocket and buying groceries. And I mean, I think you can you can do so much, you know. Um, and I think I think coaches and football. In any kind of sport, do play that role for millions of kids in this country, right? Um, I, I I think football is an amazing sport. I think it's I mean just for these these poor communities, it, it serves such a, an enormous role in their lives. Um, not just football, just just organized and like trying to get into college. And people always ask me like, what do you think about you know all the like you know trying to get me into the politics of of football? And it's like I always go back to that that right there. It's like this is guidance for these kids, man. And oftentimes a lot of these kids have nothing else but that team. And that team is their scaffolding. That team and that coach is that thing to hold on to. And, you know, some of them, some of them let go. Some of them can't do it. You know, there were on that team that I followed, you know, one guy's, um, a couple of guys, three guys are in prison. One guy for capital murder. Another guy, I don't know what they ended up getting him for, but another guy um, was murdered. One guy's dead. Three guys are in prison. And that's just what I know about. And then you mentioned <laughs> San Antonio Holmes, and there's a quote in there that he talks about that he states that, uh, you know, I don't know if I, how much time I want to spend back there now because of the amount of violence. This, this is back in, back when you wrote yeah. the book. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about the dynamic between the guys that made it out and... <laughs> Bell Glades, and then I want to ask you a little bit about um, kind of the violence and that how that affected the self discipline on the team. Obviously, a lot of guys from there make the NFL, and I'd say I'd say most of them come back, and come, most of them, you know, help their family and and all that. It, you know, it can get real messy. I think um, when when you are trying to put money into a place, I mean, and I think a lot of them get um, kind of scared off by it, uh, like. I know there was there was um, there was like a controversy. One of the a player came back and was trying to do a uh, like a, a camp or something, and the money was like stolen. And I mean, it, there's just stuff like that. And and I think players use that a lot. They know I'm not going to go back. It's just too messy. But San Antonio, um, that guy, I don't know if he still does it, but for several years, he and another NFL guy would would they do they would do these football camps, and I think those are. Amazing, and you know, like the professional players do those in their hometowns all over all over the country. And but yeah, you know, he told me, you know, kind of we're just they're talking. He's like, I, I don't like to come back here because it's depressing to him. You know, mm. like it it he's trying to like mind up here, and he's trying to to kind of stay positive. And um, I think you know, I can go back to trauma, and I can say like going back to those places are probably triggering events for him. To, to be back there, it, it probably brings back memories and it probably um, just makes him uh, anxious. Um, and so a lot of guys just, they stay away. They stay away. And then you have the, the, the opposite side of that where Esther not only stayed away, I mean, not only came back, but like came back to live and he came back. You know, his, his family actually lives a little bit outside of Belgrade, about 20 minutes because his wife works in West Palm Beach. So they kind of live halfway you know he would they would live in belgrade if 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 jesse if it had his way you know he and i always admired him for that you know he he's like you know he's making no money you know coaching that team and is really doing it out of service and it and i think he has a lot to offer those kids Um, but yeah so it it, a lot of those guys are very wary of coming back and i think probably for good reason yes and then it sounds like the the violence has from at least when Holmes was there to when you were there had steadily increased. And where I wanted to go from that was the way you portray it in the book, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but it seemed like the team did lack discipline. 
Would oh, that be yeah. accurate? Yeah. Okay. So here, here I, have a, I have a couple questions I want to talk on that. So yeah. now we're, this is, this is uh, very personal to me and, and, where I work at, at Castlemont High School and, uh, uh-huh. you know, one of the most violent neighborhoods in California. So it's probably that, probably one of the most violent neighborhoods in the country. And yeah. um, discipline is our, uh, is our biggest issue. And yeah. um, when, you, when you talked about describing them getting ready to practice and stuff like that, that's what really resonated with me. Um, because it's like, well, this, this, sounds like, this sounds like our practice. And I'm wondering how did you, how did kind of the lack of discipline stand out to you? And then what did the coaches do to try and fix that issue? Yeah. That's like, it's what they struggled with every day. Like I, I can, I can just hear Jesse, like every day is like, guys, it's the little things. It's the little things, you know, oh, over and over. And over. It's the little things. Um, yeah. Uh, basically in a nutshell, these guys were undisciplined, but they were so good athletically just natural athletic ability that they just ran over ran over every team and once they kind of got a little bit more discipline as the season went on they were unstoppable but yet there was still that undiscipline would always come up and bite them you know at the possible moments every every day um it was tough i think to get them moving um but you had a lot of kids who mario and these guys who were very disciplined you know who were very disciplined and would kind of get these other kids back into shape I just, I just took it as like, these are just kids, you know, but, mm. and, and then, you know, you had to also understand what they, what their home life was like and what, you know, did they even eat breakfast that morning? You know, did they, how, how, how many have had a meal today, you know? And so how does that affecting their concentration and, and, you know, being out here in like the hundred degree heat, uh, practicing football. Um, and when I was there, like, I would say like, I remember thinking like halfway through the, the season, you know, I've like got a book deal, and I'm like, all right, what have I done? Like, these guys are terrible. Like these guys, like, I'm, I'm like, like I got a kid and, and, a, and a wife. Like, I'm like, I just, I just like, you know, sacrifice all this time and to like be in this team. And, and for these guys, these guys are, it's like the Keystone cops, man. Huh. You know? And, uh, and, and just remember thinking that going like, Oh my gosh, these guys are, these guys are awful because they, they would, they, you know, they would just be lazy and they just wouldn't, do anything and then like something happened I don't know like something happened like midway through the season um they started to win and I think all of them just sort of like realized like what could happen they all they kind of realized what what was it what was at stake and um and then you know Kelvin left the team Kelvin had had to quit the team because he was too old and Mario took over and I think, you know, Kelvin was the superstar. He was going to go to Florida State. He was destined for the NFL. Everybody knew. And he was, he was like a really bad leader on the team. He, he was just skating, man. You know, he was like, whatever. I, didn't, I don't have to work. And, and he like, you know, once he got into college, he like did the work. And now he's a, he's a great player. But in high school, like he didn't, you know, I don't think he ever asked to be the leader of the team either. Um, and so I think those guys were looking up to him and they were watching him like, you know, flub the push-ups and, and like, you know, piss off the coaches. And, um, and then once he left and Mario was a leader, everything changed. And they, they realized, oh, wait a minute, we we're good. We can be good. And, um, there were still moments, but, but yeah, something definitely changed when Mario came aboard. And then where do you see kind of the, I mean, you could use your experience as a war reporter and in, in this project, but where do you see kind of the correlation of poverty and lack of hope and self-discipline how how do how do you kind of view that in terms of how does that kind of all meld together for the team like you mean yes yeah i think hopelessness is is probably uh pervasive in in these communities in in depression and all the things that come with with poverty depression you know poor health uh and it, it, it really, it, it weighs, weighs these kids down, man. It's like a, it's like an anchor on their neck. Uh, and you know, I mean, these guys are born behind the eight ball. Man. I, I, it's just this, this story about these players kneeling, you know, on the field. And it's like to know what is going on in these communities that these 
these guys come from. Um, I mean, I, I think I think most of this country don't doesn't want to know. They're like, oh yeah, he had a hard life. Oh yeah, he overcame adversity. But to really know what that means, to, to really, I mean, to become an NFL player, I don't know how many thousands, tens of thousands, like right, like the chances of, of getting in the NFL are are amazing, right? And then, I mean, that's just athletically, right? Like you have the athletic, the athleticism to do that. But also having having overcome both your parents dying or witnessing someone being shot or your, or your, your brother's going to prison or, you know, you're not like living in pot, living without food. That, that is a completely other mountain that you have to climb. I mean, like if, if you overcome that and become like an accountant, I mean, it's a miracle, right? Mm. But to, to overcome that and become an NFL player, it's amazing. And I don't think that people appreciate that. I don't think we, I don't think we're having the right conversation in this country, um, about poverty and about trauma and, and, and it's damaging effects on, on, on kids. Um, I don't think we're having the right conversation about kids and, and what they go through. So I look at when I, when I watch an NFL game, man, I, I just, it's ever since I, I, I've done that work in Belgrade, like I just see it completely differently, you know? And, um, I don't know. It just it's it, to me. There's a million stories in there that I that I'm looking at, rather than rather than like X's and O's and and the scoreboard. I'm just seeing a million stories in there. And then, what do you feel is a better conversation with with kids and and in, in poverty in this country? I just think people need to be aware of of, of actually what happens in the, with the in these communities and what and what causes that poverty. And it's not so much. You know, we, we're so hung up on, in this country on personal responsibility. And yeah, there is that in bootstraps. We pull each other, pull up from the bootstraps, just kind of an oxymoron in itself. Hmm. But um, it's it, it's too much. Like, it, we don't understand poverty in this country. We don't want to understand poverty in this country because it would, it would lead us to have some really uncomfortable conversations about how our country, you know, uh, came to be the richest country in the nation, what our, what our system does to poor people. And, you know, we, we would have to, we, it would lead us to some very uncomfortable conversation that, that these guys kneeling right now are trying to, to put forth and you can see how that's going for them. Right. And this is, which is why when I, uh, when I look into the like ACEs and, and, and that, that research, it's just, it's so exciting to me because now we can talk about this on like a clinical level. We can talk about this on a scientific level, right? And it doesn't have to be about, okay, well, you're, well, you're a crack addict. Well, you're just a lazy you know, person who, um, you know, and all the, all the, all the stereotypes that come with that. Right. Well, you know, what, what is your, like, how many, how much trauma is in your life? Like, you know, we know that it, that trauma sits like a poison, like a poisonous seed inside us and it just, it just bursts. Right. And, and so to, to look at poverty and to look at these kind of communities from a lens of, of trauma. Um, I'm not saying everybody's a victim and I don't want to, I don't want to victimize saying, you know, I, that's not what I'm trying to do, but it's what I want to do is let us, we have to, we have to approach poverty and, um, the way that we talk about these communities, these poor communities in a different way for all of us. I think it, it's better for, for this whole country. I mean, I, and this, this NFL thing, I think to me is, it's just a byproduct of that, of us not wanting to do that. Thank you for that. And that's yeah, so good. And then just to go back to the kneeling. So uh, Colin Kaepernick, he visited Castlemont a couple of years ago, right after, you know, when this kind of really started to, yeah. to bubble in the NFL. And then so our guys, you know, a lot of times when we play national anthems, not going to play. But when it does, they do kneel. And it's mm. so, like, you can just, like, I tear up just thinking about it. Because it's like, for that one moment, they feel like they're they're taking control of uh, their lives and their situation. So I, I just, I completely agree where, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of 
the the military and the, sure. the service that they provide. And I I, I, I completely agree. It's just the wrong conversation that yeah. we are having about when guys are kneeling on the field. Because I mean, I just it's two conversations. It's two yeah. completely different conversations. Yeah. And and people know and people know what we're trying to say, but they re, they're refusing to acknowledge it. And that that's what makes me upset the most. Because, you know, I can sit with my family and they can just dog these guys, you know. And I'm like, you know what they're kneeling for. You know what it is. You just don't want to talk about that. You know? I mean, and they're like, no, it's about the troops. Like, but it's not. You know, like these guys have said it. We're just not what, 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 who's the player? That brilliant thing. He had the, the poster board. You're not listening. You're not listening. That's it. Nobody, you know, you you, you know, the conversation, you know what these guys are trying to say, but you're not willing to have that conversation. And it's not that they don't understand. It's just an unwillingness to, to sit and listen. And I think this is, you know, this is another big theme of my reporting. My work these days is like this, this, this divide in our country and, you know, the right and the left there we're, we're shouting these, these there, nobody is really in the middle nobody is really willing to to listen to each other and um that's a, a glaring example of that um and i don't know i don't know what 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 it takes it, it is that is the conversation that and it's just not being had and then i want to talk about another young student and that you talk about in the book john terry williams if you could, yes. if you could talk a little bit about her, and then uh, I got a couple questions I want to ask to follow up on that. Well, when I went into the reporting, I, I uh, quickly realized, like, okay, so what about the other like ninety eight percent of the school, right? What do they do, you know, or ninety four percent, whatever, I, whatever number I came up with? What like they're not football players. Like, how do they get out of this this school, you know? And I I thought, well, I bet it's a lot harder for them to get out of into college than it is these football players, and, and I was right. So. I went to the principal and I said, who, who had given me his permission to work in the school. And I said, give me your smartest kid. Give me your smartest student, you know? And, uh, they gave me, uh, this, this girl, John Williams. And she was the, the valedictorian, um, worked two jobs, uh, wanted to be a doctor, uh, was in every kind of, uh, you know, she was a Ted cheerleader, she was in every kind of service thing that you could do. She was applying for scholarships, working as a, as a cashier at Winn-Dixie, um, going to her classes. This girl, I mean, was, was busier than me, you know, or, or she, she, she had, she had an amazing schedule, but it was all to get out. It was all to get college scholarship. And her dad had been put in prison when she was young. Uh, her mom had to work two or three jobs, sometimes three jobs to support her and her sister. But her mom was solid, right? Her mom, her mom was there for her. Yeah, so you know, I, I was with her through all the like the college application process and then the scholarship application process, and you know, and it was awesome, man. When when all of a sudden, you know, it was like at the eleventh hour, she hadn't got any scholarships, and we're like, oh no, and you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna go to college. And I'm like, how is this? this is crazy? How can you not get a scholarship? And then like all, all these scholarship offers came coming into her, and uh, it was wonderful. Yeah, so she. Um, she ended up going to um, FIU, and she's a nurse now. I mean, she's uh, I, and I. This is I haven't talked to her in about six months, but yeah, she's a nurse. Um, graduated college, I think. She is going into medical school. Yeah, I mean, she's she's a rock star. I love her so much, and she was just this just this glowing star throughout the whole book. It was like she was my north star, like through the whole thing. Like she was just solid, you know. And, and I wanted her, I'm like, look, you know, not only is she not a football player, but she's a girl, you know, and like, like, how did, how did they get out? Right. And, um, and she was like the biggest success story of all of them. And I was so happy. Yeah. It was so good. It was so inspiring. And it's just, yeah, you talk about how her and her mom create this plan for her after her, her dad goes to prison when she was in seventh grade. And it's like, Just let, let's use the football great. analogy where football, every single coach across the country now, they, they talk about embrace the process, right? The, yeah. the daily yeah. process. And then John, John Terrier, who doesn't play football, immediately when I saw, when I got to that point in the book where she gets the scholarship, like she's a prime example 
of someone who just embraced the process, knowing, having no idea yeah. how this was going to end up, and yeah. it worked out. So just absolutely amazing. Yeah. And she followed the process. She stuck to it. I mean, she had a plan that she stuck to it. That was crazy. She knew exactly what she had to do. So I I had not met a, a young person that disciplined in my life until I met her. It was really inspiring. And then in terms of the relationships that the players built with each other and the coaching staff, do those extend in terms of uh, after high school, in terms of guys um, staying with each other and being supportive of each other and helping each other along? Did, did you notice that in in Bell Glades, or what was that like? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, the, coach Q, he was the defensive backs coach he he keeps in touch with all of his guys right so and they always he's always posted up on facebook about the guys coming back and seeing them uh and hester yeah i mean they they try to as they probably keep in touch as much as the kids want to they they definitely keep in touch with their families there in belgrade because it's a very small town so you they see each other out at restaurants and you know they in the grocery store so they they definitely keep a tab on them and i think it's it's nice for those those kids especially when they're in college uh, and they're playing at some JUCO or, you know, and they're struggling or they're, you know, they're, they're getting doubtful and, and homesick. And, uh, I think those coaches play a big role and, you know, just sending them a message or calling them, uh, or, uh, I know like when they came, when they come home for like Christmas or Thanksgiving, they'll go work out with the team, with the coaches. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a real family atmosphere. And I think it, I assume it's still that way. So good. And yeah. then, what was your most memorable experience during your time there? Really, it was it was becoming friends with these kids, uh, you know, and, and and like listening to the music that they liked because I was really into that. Like, I really wanted to. I'm sure I was just I was just this like goofy white guy that was there, right? Um, uh, it was it was getting the the trust, you know, of of them and and their families. You know, I I, I had a I hit a pretty big wall there for a while, and. Uh, and getting access and everything. And then, um, I lived there, you know, and, and I would, I'm a runner. So in the mornings I run and I would run along the canals and stuff. And, um, and I would, people would honk at me and stuff and I'd wave and, um, <laughs> and then I would, I would be at football practice that day. And someone, one of the coaches said, Hey man, I saw you run. Is that you? I was like, yeah, it's me. And they're like, I thought you lived in like West Palm. I'm like, no man, I live here. <laughs> and, w- and once people realized that I lived there, it changed. And I went, I went, there was one time I went on the radio. There's a, like a pregame radio show that everybody listens to religiously. Right. It's on the gospel soul station. there, And, um, Mike D he was the, the, the DJ brought me on. And I, and I just kind of introduced myself to the town and the community. Like my name is Brian Miller. I'm here. I'm a reporter. And I've been, you know, you may have seen me around. And if you have any stories, like come talk to me. And after that, like, really people just opened up to me they you know I would, I would go i would go to church on sundays with their families and go out go to lunch with them afterwards and it was really it was a really nice time and um uh, and then they, they wouldn't like stop talking to me you know um, but i think the pinnacle for me was uh, i got to go rabbit hunting with these kids um you know because every year uh when they when the sugar companies harvest that cane uh they set it on fire first in order to burn out the the undergrowth uh, there's all this like weeds and stuff so the the threshing machines can come over and, and harvest it because um, i think the weeds and stuff get caught up in the in the blades uh, so they burn it and so that's a, it's a it's a big event all throughout the glades so you just see these big smoke clouds like you know it's it's a big part of the fall and it and it, and it, and it just creates this haze in town and this blanket this like snow storm of ash is always fun it's really terrible for people's allergies and asthma and stuff but it's kind of part of the glades years ago when they started doing this you know some enterprising young kids there um realized that when they burn the cane they also flush out all the rabbits that are in the in the cane fields and so they'll see where the 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 fire has started and they'll wait on the on the cane breaks and sure enough the smoke will move and all these rabbits just start pouring out of there. And these kids start chasing them with BB guns and sticks. And, you know, they'll bring home three rabbits to cook, you know, put it in the freezer. And this has been a tradition in the Glades forever. And, and the, the, you know, the saying is like, that, that's what makes them so fast, right? Which is, if, which is funny. It's a story. But 
especially if you chase a cottontail, because a cottontail is they dart and weave, and you know they're fast. And if you can chase a cottontail, then you know you can make the Glade Central football team, whatever. But uh, it's, and that's good. It's and when I, when I think guys, about that, I think there is yeah. merit to that. And I'd love to hear your yeah, take. Maybe. Here's here's my take why. So I got a background in, in speed training and human performance, and I don't think it's about yeah. even the biomechanics of of building up speed to catching a rabbit. I, this this is my thing on it. I think yeah. that when you're a kid, the fun uh-huh. of being able to go chase an animal like that one, so, yeah. you, so you're gonna you're gonna create this this connotation of you, you're living this 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 challenging life and you go out here where you can be free, you can run, you can go, let's, let's add some evolutionary psychology to it where you're hunting something, which is in our blood and males to do that. So it creates like all these, these connotations of this is fun. This, this is something I enjoy. And I think it, it translates directly over to football. I mean, there's that connotation, you know, where in, in lots of other places, Throughout the country, it's like this with any sport. Let's just say football, where you know, young kids with football, it's run this regimented regimented drill or do this yeah. because I said so, or I'm going to start screaming at you. And then compare yeah. that to out there, where it's just a kid, you know, running free trying to catch a rabbit. I mean, you know, it, it's completely different, and it it, it yeah. sounds like yeah. it creates like a different, completely different. I love it. I love that story. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And, um, you know, the, the sugar companies, um, they got wise all these kids years ago, you know, and they're, they're terrified of these kids getting like caught in a machine or something. (laughs) So for insurance purposes, right. They like try to kick them out. Um, so we got there and, um, they're burning this field and they're like, let's, we like took off, you know, and come to this like smoldering field, you know, and there's these, there's these tractors and these, I mean, threshers and, and and these and these guys are like freaking out. These and the kids are like running like in between the threshers and they're trying to <laughs> kill the rabbits and um and they we, they got one and uh and then pretty soon the, these guys are like we're, we're calling the police. You guys can't be here, you know. Um, so I was like, guys, like I mean, if if these kids got like got arrested, like the coach would like have my head, man, you know. I was like, the reporter is not going to get the kids in jail, man, you know. So the reporter is going to take the kids and then leave. Um, and so I, I, we, we got out, but it was, it was a good, um, it, it was a good little taste of it, you know, and I got to see what, what, what they were doing. And, um, yeah, I love those guys. Those guys were, they, they really, they really brought me in and, and, uh, um, uh, introduced me to a lot of stuff. So, and I'm still in touch with them. So I'm, I'm, it's, it was a, a really, a really great time in my life. And then the, the final thing I want to talk to you about, um, yeah. this, this is what I, this is kind of what I aspire to accomplish with my guys at Castlemont is the the conversation that the team had with each other before the state championship. Uh, yeah. It just like it just seems like there's so much, you know, you, you talk about trauma and hopelessness and it's like malaise growing up in areas like this. And it just seemed like that is like a peak experience that these guys will remember for the rest of their life. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what that was and how it came about. Yeah. Wow. Kind of got choked up thinking about it. Um, yeah, we were in just in some, you know, Hester said, you know, we're going to, we're going to meet before the game and we're just going to go over some plays and, and, um, you know, defense, blah, blah, blah. We're going to work on this stuff, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and, it quickly turned into this kind of group therapy session um, where the guys talking about not having a father and just the adversity in their life and how Hester had kind of come in and he was their dad. It wasn't like, Oh coach, thank you for all you've done. But it was, it was like a crying out from these kids and they were, they were working through that trauma at the best they could. And, and they knew that it, it had all come to this moment, right? Like it had all come to that moment. And, and they were talking about their dads and their lack of fathers and, and, and everybody was like, all of us in that room were just, we're just bawling. Like we were just crying And it. Um, it's like, and it, it was just painful and it was, it was tough to listen to. And it was so beautiful at the same time because you, you saw these kids just get in touch with their feelings and dig down deep and 
and just the love that they had for each other and the support that they had for each other. I mean, you got out of that meeting and we're like, we're going to, we're going to go beat the new England Patriots. Like these guys are going to, these guys, these guys are unstoppable. Like, like who can beat us now with, with this, you know, it was like this armor on them. And, uh, it was one of the most incredible, one of the most emotional, um, experiences of my, of my career so far. Um, just to, I felt so privileged to, to be in that room, listening to that and, and to be able to, to put it down on paper. And, um, yeah, yeah. It was like group therapy. It was, it was an incredibly moving moment. Um, and I think it really fired him up and, well, uh, anyway, I don't want to spoil the end, but for yeah. sure. So yeah. good. Well, yeah. I highly recommend Muck City. And then Brian, if you want to share with the audience, um, where people can connect with you and if you want to real quickly break down your latest project which sounds really good which i actually already have on the way from amazon as well uh go ahead that'd be fantastic you know i'm uh you can reach my my, my email is i mean uh my uh website is brianmuehler.net that's b-r-y-a-n-m-e-a-l-e-r.net i'm at at brian Mueller on twitter um yeah and uh after Muck City, I spent six years working on a, a, a book about my family out in West Texas. Uh, it's like a generational saga of my family out in the oil fields and all the trials and tribulations and ups and downs of of being a cotton farming oil family. And um, we were we were a big Christian family early on, and, and embracing that faith. Yeah, it's like, uh, and then it goes into my my dad's time when I was a kid, uh, working the, uh, the early eighties oil boom. And there was lots of, uh, lots of money, lots of flash, lots of fur coats and, and gold rings. And my dad was a drilled for oil with this really flamboyant character. Friend. So I tell people it's like, um, it's like grapes of wrath meets boogie nights. So I like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that just came out in February and yeah. So, and I'm, I'm I write for the guardian. I just wrote a, Story for the New Republic that came out uh, this week about um, evangelical upbringing and kind of coming to terms with that in the era of Trump. And so I'm just, you know, I'm working. Follow me. And then what I'm doing. And then in terms of Muck City, you know, it yeah. like I saw some of the reviews. It was compared to Friday Night Lights, and there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of guys that listen to this. They're they're football guys, so they're gonna they're gonna get it for that. But I, I just feel like it yeah. it, it totally boxes the book in yeah when it's not yeah. it's not like that i mean even even today how much time did we spend talking about football you know yeah it's yeah. it's it's about young it, young men coming together to accomplish something in uh it's, amidst un, adversity. it's unfortunate the book marketers uh they, they stumble over themselves to compare it to a bigger book they think it works and uh and it doesn't i mean it it, it i think it it does a disservice to that book um, and then to say call it a human interest story would be too broad. So what would you say? How what, how would you market what this is? I think it's a, a, a book about poverty and resilience. Mm. It's what you're talking about in every one of those pep, pep, pep talks you give those kids. This is what it looks like on the other side. You know, <laughs> this is like, you know, you're going to work hard. You know, it's like, all that stuff that Jesse was talking about, you know, it's, it, yeah, you, it's just a great story about people. Um, and, and people who don't probably get a lot of stuff written about them, you know, in a, in a fair way, I think. So I, I always like try to take the stories that people have kind of, um, written off and, and really focus on. I like, I like those kind of stories. I like people who are written off. I, I kind of champion those people, you know, so this is what that's what that's what Belgrade that's what Belgrade is, and they're still doing it. They're still playing good football, and Coach Esther's there still. He's still a coach. Yeah, his son, who is yeah. uh, he's a senior receiver for them, and when you mentioned in kind of our pre-talk, you said that yeah. when when that when he was running around when he was eight years old, you could you could already tell that he was going to be a player. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. yeah, he was eight years old. He's wanted to be on the field every minute, man. He would sit on the sidelines with his dad. He'd pace the sidelines. Well, I mean, and his dad was, his dad was so sweet with him. He would just be real patient with him. He would throw him the football. And, um, 
Yeah, it makes me happy to hear that he's that he's playing. I, that, it doesn't surprise me at all. That kid, that kid was really talented um, when he was eight, and I'm I, I'm sure he's even better now. So, so good. Well, Brian, I appreciate you for coming on, and uh, let's connect yeah, again man. soon. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it, man. Good luck. What a story. So good. Highly recommend the book Muck City. Check out Brian's other stuff. It goes way deeper than football. And that's why I resonated with it so much because what's going on at Bell Blades, I, I, I see the same thing in, we're well not the same thing, but similarities in terms of uh, the Castlemont neighborhood in Oakland, California. And because of that, if you found this episode at all educational or entertaining, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that gets more eyes and ears to the show. The more eyes and ears we get to the show, the more resources I can provide to the student athletes at Castlemont who are going through very similar circumstances and bouts of trauma, just like what Brian saw with the Bell Glades football players. So I appreciate you listening, and I will see you at the next episode. Bye-bye.